Corinthians 13, verse number 8. Reading from the New King James Version. If you have it tonight, say amen. Now, you know you had it because it was on the screen. All right. It counts. Here's what the Bible says. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. And now abides faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Lord, I pray that these students of your word would just open up their hearts to receive everything that you have for them. Lord, your word is, 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 is ageless because, Jesus, you're the eternal word. But, Lord, many of us have heard these scriptures time and time again, and it's easy for us, Lord, to turn an ear to something and say, oh, we've heard that before. But, Holy Spirit, I pray you make it fresh in the hearts and lives of every person that is listening tonight or who will listen in the future. We give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, tonight we're going to continue, like I said, on the love factor. But I want to I recap just a little bit. And if you've t- got your Bible, you can grab it and look over there. We kind of broke this up into a couple of different segments. But uh, the first week we talked about the uh, importance of love. And Paul said in verse uh, 13, or chapter 13, verse 1, he says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, he said, I am of a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and even though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and I have not love, it profits me nothing. So in that first week, we talked about the, the importance of love. Love is a principal thing. We established in this that there are many different words in the New Testament for love. And in this passage specifically, it's dealing with the agape love, the charitable love, the God kind of love. It's a love that's undeserving. It's a love that's unconditional. It's the same kind of love that the Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us while we were yet still in our sin. We were ungodly. He died for us. Uh, it's, It's the love that covers the multitude of sin. It doesn't make excuse for sin, but love covers. It means it, it gives, it gives the, the advantage to the person. It says, you know, I don't have to love what you did, but I love you. And, and that's the kind of love that God gives us. So we talked about how spiritual gifts are important. We talk about how at Corinth they were operating. In fact, if you go back in uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3, of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul tells them, you come behind in no spiritual gift. I mean, there are nine New Testament manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there are, you know, the, the knowledge gifts. There's the discerning of spirits, the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, 
There's the vocal gifts. You've got tongues, the interpretation of tongues and prophecy. Then you've got the, what they call the power gifts, which are uh, faith, working of miracles. And, and um, you know, you've got um, those, those are the faith, the working of miracles, and the gifts of healings. And so they came behind in no gift, but where they were coming behind was in their fruit. And we studied and showed over the last couple of weeks how a church that walks in maturity or a church that walks in love has to have the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but you also have to have the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And that's patience, and that's love, it's kindness, it's gentleness, and all of those things. They counterbalance yet complement each other because they come from the same Holy Spirit. Paul even went on to say, he said, uh, if, you, if you speak with the tongues of men and angels, but you don't have love, you're like a sounding brass in a tinkling of a cymbal. So we realized how important that was. Then the next week, we begin to talk about the nature of love. That's found over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. He says, love suffers long, and it's patient. Love does not envy. It does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. We talked about how Walking in love is not rude, and how we have to be careful how we treat one another, how we talk to one another. Uh, we also learned about how uh, it doesn't rejoice in the downfall of others. Love doesn't uh, rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. It believes all things, the best of all things. It hopes for all things, and it endures all things. Tonight, I want to pick up where we left off in verse number 8 and talk about the endurance of love. The endurance of love. Uh, we start that actually in verse number 8 where Paul says, love never fails. When you think about the word endurance, what do you think about? When I think about the word endurance, it takes me back to about this, the 8th and ninth grade. When I was in the 8th and ninth grade, I don't know if you can believe this or not, I was a peer-pressured athlete. In, in other words, I only joined stuff because my friends were a part of it. I never was an athletic kid growing up. I didn't make the first cut on the football team. I was a second string, not a starter. I, uh, I was the center. I snapped the ball. When I was in track, I was too big to run. I was much bigger as, a, as a, you know, somebody who was in high school. And so I did the shot put in the disc, okay? But I was always fascinated by the runners. And in, in the Olympics, and in track and field, you have basically two classifications of runners. You've got sprinters and you've got endurance runners or marathon runners. Now, both of these runners are awesome, but yet they're different at the same time. Because a sprinter is somebody who usually is running a short distance. And when you look at a sprinter, a lot of times they'll have everybody lined up on the line. Oftentimes they'll have the, the little gun where they give the, the shot, you know. And then, you know, on your mark, get set. Boom, you go, and that sprinter exerts everything that he can from the very first second. I mean, all of his energy. I mean, this guy has what they call in the sports world, he has carved up for days and days. He's eating pasta. He's eating rice. He's eating bread, everything he can get so that his muscles are full of glycogen. That way he can just bust off as fast as he can. But the problem is, is that you can't run a marathon that way. Because you'll burn out in the very first part of it. An endurance runner has a totally different mindset. The endurance runner's concern is not as much with how they start. But an endurance runner's concern is how they finish. 
And so an endurance runner is starting the race thinking about the end line. So they've conditioned themselves differently. They've, they've conditioned the way they focus. They've conditioned the way they eat. They've conditioned the way they train. And so they're constantly running with the end game in mind. And I believe that when we focus on the end of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul begins to give us an eternal perspective about love. So, Let's look at it tonight. We're going to read this again, and then we're going to begin to break it down. 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come... He says, that which is in part will be done away with. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child and I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. And now abides faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. If you're taking notes tonight, first thing I want to talk to you about out of this passage is love's consistency. Love's consistency. Uh, and so notice here he says love never fails. Somebody say never. Now this is a very direct word. When God says never, he means never. And love can never fail. Why? Because John writes and he says God is love. And that means God's whole essence is love. And that's hard for us to wrap our mind around when we think about the different aspects of carnal love, but we're talking about the God kind of love. God is love. As I said it before, and I'll repeat myself being a broken record tonight, you will never ever, no matter who they are, no matter where they've been, no matter what they've done, no matter how they voted, come on somebody, you will never lock eyes with somebody that God doesn't love. Nobody. You'll never lock eyes. You say, Hitler, yep. Stalin, yep. Nero, yep. You say, how can God love those? Because God's love's different than us. Doesn't mean he approves. Doesn't mean they get a pass. Doesn't mean they don't. Hell's full of people God loves. But God loves everybody in that way. And his love is never, ever failing. God's love cannot fail. Say that with me. God's love cannot fail. That was really weak. Let's do it again. God's love cannot fail. I am excited about that. You know why? Because there's never a moment I can mess it up that God doesn't love me. And I know that if he loves me, I can dust off and I can get back up and I can do it all over again. I know that God loves me. Why? The love of God, it champions the victory every single time. Love never, ever, ever fails. There's consistency in God's love. Now, let's look at this a little deeper. Right off of one little verse, love never fails. But notice this. He says, but where there are prophecies, they'll fail. Tongues, they'll cease. Whether there's knowledge, it'll vanish away. For we know in part, prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. Um, we see love's consistency, but I want you to look at the love's comparison. Love's comparison. Paul begins to draw a picture of the temporal versus the eternal. I want you to get that. The temporal versus 
the eternal. How many of you know we live in a very temporal world? Now, we're spiritual beings having a physical experience. We, um, we do not cease to exist when our bodies die, whether you're saved or unsaved. You either go to heaven or you go to hell. There's no holding place. There's no purgatory. There's no in-between. That's just the way it is. We, we are eternal. Our spirits are eternal. What we do with Jesus determines where we go, right? Um, but yet we live in a very temporal world. In other words, the car you have now, you may not have 30 years from now, okay? Now, that may be different 30 years ago when they made vehicles that were really good, right, Nan? But today, vehicles are not made to keep forever. You know, they're a little bit more uh, not as durable as they used to be, okay? Uh, many people don't have a lot of the same things, possessions that they had. Why? Because things change. People lose things to a house fire. They lose things to a flood. I think about right after I had moved to uh, the, the nation of Louisiana, the mission field, uh, when I moved down there years ago, and it is a mission field, by the way. It's not America. I promise you, it's different. When we moved to Louisiana, shortly after Hurricane Katrina came, people lost everything in the state. And the whole upper part of Louisiana looked like a FEMA camp with trailers everywhere and people's mobile homes were destroyed and, and everything. So in this world, what we have are possessions. They can be lost quickly. You don't believe me? Ask Job. Job lost everything so fast, even his family, his possessions, his livestock, his cattle, everything. He lost it. But the thing is, is that everything that we can see, everything that we can taste, everything that we can touch, everything that we can feel is all temporary, right? Temporary. But yet, the Bible teaches that there is a parallel reality which is eternal. It's the spiritual realm. There's a physical realm. There is a spiritual realm. So when you begin to think about things, they are both important, right? How many of you know what we interact with in this physical realm is important? We have to have food. We need clothes. We need a place to live. We need tools to get our jobs done. We need all of that. But a lot of times we focus in on the temporary, don't we? We focus in on its value. We focus in on its importance as if that's all there is. And I think what Paul's trying to get down to in the nitty-gritty is that he's trying to zero in, if you will, on the Corinthian church and let them know that the things that are causing them the issues are things that are not always going to be. And he's trying to tell them, guys, you need to focus on what matters. You need to focus on love. Why? Because they were, they were having issues with tongues. I, I, I talked about this a little bit last week, but go back and read 1 Corinthians 11 and 12. The Bible does not, does not, does not, does not um, say that tongues are not important. In fact, Paul, who wrote this passage, said this. I think, my God, I speak in tongues more than all of you. The Apostle Paul said that. And Paul said, and when I, I'll, I'll, I'll sing in my understanding and I will sing with the Spirit. I will sing with, or pray with my understanding and I will pray with the Spirit. Paul talked about tongues, the value of them. He talked about all of that, but yet they were having problems in Corinth where they were um, overtaking the service with tongues. 
And that's why he laid out in there in his ground rules. Go back and read it, 1 Corinthians 11 and 12. He said, if there be a message in tongue, he said, there needs to be an interpretation. He said, then if there's not an interpretation, what does he say? He says, then you need to be silent, right? Now, what's he trying to say there? Well, there's a tongue that's for prayer. Then there's a tongue that's for a a, a message that needs to be interpreted. Those outward tongues that, that I don't like to use the word interrupt a service because it's not, God's not interrupting, but the, interrupt the flow of things maybe, and there's a public utterance, those needs to be interpreted. But what they were doing in Corinth was that they were exalting their spirituality over each other, and one person would say this, another person would say that. And so he would go and he would say, look, guys, there needs to be some order right here. And then I, it's amazing how in 1 Corinthians 13, here's what he says. He says, y'all are fighting over this, but where there are tongues, they'll fail. They'll cease. Paul said, you guys are fighting over something that is temporal. It only has to do with right now. Because some of you know there won't be any tongues in heaven. There won't be any need for them. In fact, I'm a firm believer. You'll never be able to talk me out of it. And I'm not going to debate this with you because it's not doctrine. But I believe Hebrew is the language of God. I do. I believe that's what Adam and Eve probably spoke. I believe that's what everybody probably spoke into the Tower of Babel. Uh, It's the oldest recorded language in the world. And uh, who knows? Maybe when we get to heaven we'll all speak Hebrew. I don't know. But either way, tongues as we know it down here in the earth, we won't speak them. You're not going to be praying in tongues in heaven. You're not going to need to. You're going to be in the ever presence of God forever. You know, then he talks about prophecy. Where there are prophecies, they will fail. You know what was happening in Corinth? Same thing with the tongues. But people were interrupting the preacher, interrupting the song and overthrowing themselves in the service, and they were saying, I I, I can't control myself. I, I have to give a word. I have to. And Paul comes right behind them, and he says, the spirit of a prophet is subject to a prophet. Don't say you can't control yourself when it's the Holy Spirit, when the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Come on, somebody. In fact, a greater mark of maturity is for God to be able to give you a word and you hold on to it and bathe it in prayer and see when the right timing is for you to give it. Everything doesn't have to be spontaneous where you don't have time to think about it. In fact, I believe, I'm just going to say this and I'm going to get in trouble. I believe a lot of people who prophesied that President Trump was going to be in office and obviously he wasn't. I believe that if they would have sat on some of them words and prayed over them, and submitted them to spiritual authority rather than blurting them out on the camera, uh, they may have had some wisdom there. And that's not going to get me any popularity, but it's the truth. I don't think we play around with prophecy. If God says something, it will come to pass. Amen? If not, we start spiritualizing why it didn't happen. We become nothing more than Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses said Jesus is going to come in 1914. Charles Taz Russell got all of his followers up on top of a mountain, and when Jesus didn't come, they had to find a way to fix his prophecy. And what did they say? Oh, well, he came in the Spirit. Come on, somebody. Well, that's good preaching for a young guy. That's why nobody likes me, but that's okay. Well, their prophecies, they will fail. They were exerting themselves, misusing spiritual gifts in Corinth, and that's what was happening. Now, look a little bit further. 
Look a little bit further. So what happens now, he says, um, <clears throat> which, uh, he said, when, uh, that where there's knowledge, he said it will vanish away. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. There's another place Paul said it like this. We see through a glass darkly. Get this. We see through a glass darkly. In other words, when it comes to spiritual gifts, it's a word of knowledge. It's a word of wisdom. It's a gift of healing. It's not all of it. It's a piece of it. And a lot of times, God will give us a word. He'll give us some understanding. And maybe it doesn't even make sense to us because we see through a glass darkly darkly and the church at Corinth they're arguing over these things and and Paul is beginning to tell them that listen when the perfect comes we will see clearly what's the perfect he's talking about he's talking about when Jesus comes when we enter his presence in heaven when we come to a place of full spiritual maturity Paul said it like this in another writing. He says, I labor and I travail as a mother travails over her hens, over her chicks, until Christ be formed in you. In other words, we're growing in spiritual maturity, but none of us have arrived yet. None of us have reached the, the pinnacle of spiritual utopia where we're unteachable or we know everything. No, my friend, listen, we are still ever learning. We're still ever growing. Every day we get up, we should begin to be transformed a little bit more into the image of God, a little bit more into the presence of Jesus until we begin to take on his nature and his character and his likeness. We are still coming into a place of maturity. But listen to what he says. He says, when I was a child, I thought as a child. I spake as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Children are concerned with toys. They're concerned with me, mine, my preference. But Paul said, but when I became an adult, I put away childish things. Again, he's using this temporal and eternal, and he's taking it, and he's using it as childlike and adult. And I want you to see right here in this passage that children live for the temporary, but adults tend to live with a more greater focus. Here's what Paul is simply trying to say in this passage. He's trying to say this, that listen, what matters the most is love. What matters the most is love. Because love will last throughout eternity. Amen? Now, is Paul disregarding spiritual gifts? No, he's encouraging them. But he's saying if your motivation's not right and your love's not right and your unity's not right and you're not preferring one another over, over yourself, then none of it is going to work properly. Paul is simply trying to say that we have to understand that love is eternal. Now, here's another thing here. Look at this with me. Um, he says this. We'll pick it back up in verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child, and I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then, watch this, I shall know just as I'm also known. And now abides faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. 
We've looked at love's consistency. We looked at love's comparison. I want to finish up tonight looking at love's caliber. Love's caliber. What, what, what essence of love is there that we should see tonight? Paul said, right now we see everything in this world dimly. Why? Because we're viewing everything through the veil of the flesh. But he makes a statement, though, that when we come into the manifestation of that which is perfect, he said, we will know even as we're known. We will know even as we're known. You know, people say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God all these questions. Have you been there before? I'm going to ask him why grandma died. I'm going to ask him why my wife left me. I'm going to ask him why this, that, the other. I don't think you're going to ask him. I, for one, I think we're going to be so enamored with his presence that all those questions are going to fleet our mind. But number two, I think that there's going to be, as spiritual beings, there's going to be a knowing that we'll just know. Somebody asked me, they'll say, are we going to know people in heaven? Absolutely. Absolutely. I say, Pastor Brad, how, how, do you, how do you figure that? Well, there's, there's not like direct scriptural teaching, but there's inferred teaching. How many of you remember when the disciples were walking with Jesus and they come up to the Mount of Transfiguration? And there, all of a sudden, Jesus changes before them and appears in glory. And there beside him stand Moses and Elijah. The disciples knew who Moses and Elijah were and they never ever met them or seen them before. But they recognized them in their spiritual form. When we get to heaven, we are going to know things. We're going to be known even as we're known. We're going to have knowledge. We're going to have understanding. But the greatest of all of those things, though they're fleeting in our eternalness right now in this world, what we must realize is that love is the vital, important thing. Why? Notice this. He says this. And now. Everybody say now. That means present. Now abides faith. We have faith right now. Now abides hope. We have hope right now. Now abides love. We have love right now. But notice out of these three, the greatest of these is love. And you ask yourself the question, why? It goes back to verse 8. Because love never fails. It never fails. Now notice this. There comes a day where faith will eventually become sight. You know, Hebrews chapter 11 is a very encouraging chapter. Now, it doesn't sound encouraging on the surface when you read about people who were beheaded or people who lost their lives or whatever. We refer to it as the hall of faith. But, you know, one thing the Bible says about Abraham and Moses and the other great patriarchs of our faith, it says something about them in Hebrews 11, and it goes like this. It says, and they died in faith, not receiving the promise. Okay? They were looking for a city whose builder and maker was God, that was not made with the hands of man. Listen, they died in faith. I want you to hear that. They died in faith, not receiving their promise we got to stop telling people they don't have faith just because they don't receive everything that God's promised them you can still have faith and yet not receive but guess what what's going to happen is that like Abraham and Moses those who 
I think about Abraham, the father of our faith. God just took him out of the land of Ur of Chaldee, and he just goes to a place where God shows him. And there, uh, he, he took Lot, and he wasn't supposed to take Lot. There was some trouble that came along the way, but he began to just walk in faith, and, and, and God began to speak to Abraham. And, and I want you to think about this. Abraham was looking for the place. Abraham died. Can you imagine whenever Jesus went on the cross? I'm going to be talking about this Easter month, what happened from the cross to the grave. Do you know that when Jesus went down into the lower parts of the earth, the Bible says he went down into the lower parts of the earth and he led captivity captive. All those Old Testament saints who died, who were in paradise, Old Testament paradise, the place where the righteous dead were. You know in the Old Testament when people died righteously, they didn't go to heaven. There was no blood atonement for their sacrifice yet. They went to paradise. It was not a place of torture. It's what Abraham, uh, it's what uh, Jesus described in the Gospel of Luke when he gave the story about the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man uh, died and opened his eyes in hell and he saw uh, Lazarus afar off being comforted in Abraham's bosom. Okay? In the Old Testament, I don't know why I'm getting into all of this. Somebody's pulling on me spiritually tonight because I guess you need to know this, but here you go. So in the Old Testament, those saints went down into the lower part of the earth. And when Jesus died, he went down and visited all those righteous people. He emptied out paradise and took the saints with him to heaven. That's what happened when he says he led principalities and powers. uh, And he led them uh, captive. And it says that he made a show of them openly. So guess what? There came a day, glory to God, where Abraham saw what he was hoping for. His faith became sight. I want you to think about that. He died in faith knowing a Messiah was coming. He may not have known everything of how he was going to look, but he was a, a, a child of God. He was a servant of Yahweh. He died in faith. And, when, and guess what? He saw what he was looking for. There's going to be a day when faith will become sight. There's going to be, be a day where our hopes will all be fulfilled But love will endure throughout all eternity. So what was the Holy Spirit trying to say to us through this writing of Paul in this chapter that we call the love chapter? He was simply trying to say this to us. That in all of our temporal striving, in all of our issues... With one another and all of the, the places of offense and all of the places of misunderstanding, of all the places of spiritual zeal, Paul is trying to tell us that we must default to love. We've got to default to love. That in order to be the people that God wants us to be, we have to walk in his nature and walk in his character. And if we learn anything from Jesus, Jesus was always putting other people before himself. I don't think we realize how selfless Jesus really was. And I I don't want to get in this too far tonight, being that it's almost time for us to go. But you know how selfless Jesus was? Before he died on the cross... Before he died on the cross, can you imagine? Just X out the fact 
that he was carrying the weight of every sin and every sickness. X that out. And just imagine the fact that he's dying of asphyxiation on the cross. Literally, what, what, what they would do with crucifixion was when they would put the nails in the hands and the feet, it was made so that, that whenever they would sag down on the cross in order to breathe, he would have to pull himself up, and every pull would just tear a little bit more. It was agony. They tried to give him the sponge with vinegar, and he rejected it. They tried to, 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 to do all kinds of things, and he, he rejected that from them. But imagine just the natural pain. He had no anesthesia. There was no shot. There was no Tylenol. There was no morphine. There was no end of life help for him in the flesh. He took all of that. And how selfless was Jesus when he sees his mother? And he says, looking at John, mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Jesus wouldn't even die until he made sure his mama was taken care of. Isn't that amazing? So what I'm trying to say tonight is this. Let our motivation be of love. If we're to prophesy, prophesy in love. If we're to give wisdom, let us give it with the motivation of love. If we're to sing, let us sing with the motivation of love. If we're to preach, let us preach with the motivation of love. Whatever we do, do it with love because love never fails. Let's pray.